As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It is Wednesday, January 27th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Things keep happening. We have JT Railmudo staying put in Philadelphia with a big contract. Uh, with Railmudo signed, Wilson Ramos felt comfortable taking a deal from the Tigers. I actually don't think those two things are related at all. Uh, a lot of shortstops on the move, too, which works out great because today is our shortstops preview. So Marcus Simeon in Toronto. Angelton Simmons in Minnesota, Freddie Galvis in Baltimore, uh, an impact on the Cleveland shortstops or shortstop eligible players with Cesar Hernandez staying in Cleveland longer. Uh, all that coming up over the course of this episode. How's it going for you on this Wednesday? You know, it's good. It's good. I don't have much to report. I think uh, <laughs> my dogs are my dogs are nuts, but they're getting a little better. They're getting a little better. Uh, the kids are nuts, but they're getting a little better. Uh, I'm nuts. I'm getting worse. <laughs> uh, I decided we're not going to do rates and barrel karaoke. Uh, could have been a segment for the show. I think based on some of the reactions to uh, the Weezer selection that you had for last. Hey, episode, we got some positive reactions. <laughs> there, there's some positive reaction, but we're we're not getting enough support to to launch rates and barrels karaoke at the You'll present time. You'll never stop me. You'll never stop me. <laughs> I will sing when you least expect it. Just you wait. That part is probably true. <laughs> uh, well, let's get right after it. Let's start with the JT Real Mudo situation, a five-year deal to stay in Philadelphia. Uh, we talked about this on Friday when we had Britt on the show, and at the time, there were some whispers that Atlanta might have been interested in Real Mudo, and I think both of you said, yeah, that just seems like posturing. Uh, this is good <laughs> Got news an extra for... $10 million. Yeah, good work by JT Real Mudo's agents in this case. But if we look back at how people were probably evaluating him this draft season, not knowing where he was going to play, I assume that most people who were willing to draft him as early as they were, kind of inside that top 40 overall, were doing that assuming that he was probably going to go back to Philadelphia. And even if he went somewhere else, earlier in the offseason, I thought Houston might be a fit. He was going to be in a good lineup. A contending team was going to sign him at worst. 
but most likely he'd have the benefits of a good hitter park by staying in Philadelphia. Yeah, I think as soon as Dave Dombrowski signed on, you got a better sense of which way the Phillies were headed, right? Uh, And then they had a gaping hole at catcher, and there was one great catcher out there. And, you know, it's interesting that the Mets jumped on McCann, and uh, that should have made the bidding war... uh, you know, sort of large and in charge for Real Muto. But the problem is I think that most teams kind of uh, almost punt on catcher. They want framers uh, who can, you know, l- you know, run into one. Just, you know, look at what, um, you know, the Rays have been running out there at catcher. That's like mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the approach to catching right now. Get a framer, uh, get a blocker, uh, get a guy who can hit, hit for some power. They have so many other things they have to do during the course of the day. They have to prepare the pitchers. They have to, you know, they're the leader of the infield in some ways. And so I think, I think that's, you know, there's not enough teams that, but you know, what's interesting about this to me is, um, Riomoto is projected to be the second best, uh, catcher by, uh, by the bat X. Um, you know the answer. I'd like, I'll, at the end of this little mini segment, I'll tell you who the first one is. <laughs> Not everyone listening may know this one. Not everyone lives on Twitter. It's hard to believe. Um, it's hard to believe. But, uh, uh, so, Riyamudu is second. Um, and James McCann is 43rd um, <laughs> on the same projection because of uh, a lot of his value comes out of Babbitt. Babbitt's really noisy. Um, he should hit for some power. And that that's that's the question is how much power he hits for, but not probably a good batting average. Um, Real Muto projects as an 800 OPS catcher. And if there are robo umps, this will be a good deal because there will be an immediate seismic shift in catching from framers to ones that can provide you some offense. I mean, game calling will still be very important, but, uh, game calling is also something that you do, I think, as a process with the other, with the other, uh, you know, coaches and your pitchers. And, um, I think it's probably something that can be coached up. Uh, even if someone's not like a great natural game caller, uh, just kind of provide them a really solid game plan. Anyway, number one is Will Smith on the Dodgers. So they've got uh, quite an asset there. Who's, who's, uh, really uh, scratching the off for himself and was never going to go to third base for JT Riamuto. <laughs> no, that was never, never going to happen. Uh, so this is this is good for fantasy purposes. I think that's pretty clear uh, at this point. I think the question is: Well, are you comfortable drafting JT Realmuto that early? I mean, this is a pretty significant investment to have that leg up over the field. ADP since January first is thirty three. So we're looking mm. at an early third round pick. If you're going to draft Real Muto, this is the big drop like we talked about on the catcher preview, about 40 picks before you get to Sal, about 60 picks before you get to Will Smith, and about 90 picks before you get to Wilson Contreras and Yasmani Grandal. I said the sweet spot for me is probably Contreras and Grandal. I have not built a team yet with Real Muto on it. I think he might fall into what I'm calling the Freddie Freeman bucket, where I am much more likely to have him in an auction scenario where I have a lot more control about how my roster comes together than I am in a snake situation where the opportunity cost of choosing Real Mudo is pretty steep in early round three. Well, this will be relevant again later when we discuss shortstops, but I'm just not comfortable 
you know, I, I, I ran the Fangraphs auction calculator with the Bad X and uh, 15 teams and two catchers just to see how far up can we push Real Muto. And I understand that, you know, there there is no scarcity as much as there's scarcity with uh, the two catcher setups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think there is a positional adjustment that needs to be made for catchers. However, I'm just not comfortable when the discrepancy between the player's value and the positional value is so large and they're so high up. So just for example, you mentioned Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman is right ahead of JT Romuto, Real Muto. And Freddie Freeman's non-position-based points value is $22. And then he gets another $8 for, for playing first base. He's a $31, $30, 30 player. JT Romuto gets $6 as a batter. And $24 for his position. Yeah. Uh, dude, I just, it just makes me feel icky. Uh, we'll get, we'll get to a uh, mailbag question about catchers at some point. Uh, that was really interesting about $1 catchers and stuff like that. But I just wanted to point that out about Real Mudo. Um, I'd rather get the, the better bat, I think. And so I'm with you. I'd rather, get the fourth or fifth best catcher uh, a few rounds later. Right. So we're talking Ozzy Albies. We're talking Xander Bogarts, Eloy Jimenez. We're talking pitchers like Brandon Woodruff and Clayton Kershaw. Uh, even someone like Corey Seager. Those are all guys that I'm more comfortable building a team around with that third round pick than with Real Muto. It's not concerns about Real Muto on a big contract. It's not concerns about his skills falling off. It's really just, to me, a price that has become too high for what you actually get, even though there is a nice boost having a player like that in your catcher spot or in one of your two catcher spots in those two catcher leagues. Uh, Just real quick on Wilson Ramos. I think this is a nice boost to the pool as well, just because Wilson Ramos is punting the position defensively and just getting a guy that hits. (laughs) You know, this is is good for us. Bad for the Tigers pitchers, maybe. There's some uh, little, little concerns there, but I like Wilson Ramos enough to say he's probably a top 20 catcher if you're projecting a two-thirds or three-quarters share of the playing time for him in Detroit. Maybe we're reaching that point in his career where he's not going to be used quite like that. Maybe we're getting to the point now where Ramos is more of a 50-50 guy or even on the the wrong side of a two-thirds, one-third split. But I see a pretty nice path for playing time for him going to the Tigers. Yeah, with 300 plate appearances, the bad X says he's basically yeah, like like you say top 25, but it's more like 25th. <laughs> I I play that game too in my articles. <laughs> <laughs> top 25 catcher. Oh, you mean 25th? Um, Wilson, I think still has the ability to hit 15 homers in a given season. Um, I think that he could hit uh, 260, 270 again instead of. Uh, the 240 that he hit in the shortened season. Yeah. Uh, in places where 30 catchers are owned, Wilson Ramos should be owned and might represent it. You know, one thing I do want to say, though, is that this will be... Tigers Park is... You know, Comerica is very hard to nail down in park factors, but I I would say this will be the most pitcher-friendly park he will hit in. Yeah. So... Might only hit 10 homers. So power ceiling down from where it was at his peak. But I think the average should be pretty good for a catcher, despite the fact that he hit 239 in the shortened season. 
Uh, only a 297 OBP. Usually he's better than that for his career. He's been at 321. So I, I like this as a stopgap measure. He's not the future of the position at all, of course. But uh, he's not blocking like, anyone. Not really blocking a great prospect and probably hits a little higher in that lineup than he would have hit if a better team had been interested in him too. So I think that gives him a little extra nudge in the projections as well. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to our shortstop preview, though. There's a ton to unpack at this position. Nine players inside the top 40 overall right now based on ADP. And there's plenty of quality at this position up and down the draft board. There's a lot of ways you can go at it. You can get a shortstop early. You can get a middle infield from the shortstop position relatively early. And you could even wait and still not be terrible later on filling those spots because of the depth afforded to us by these options. Of course, at the very top of the board, we have Fernando Tatis Jr. His ADP is 2 so he's in the mix for that number one overall pick. He's my top-ranked hitter going into this season, which is a pretty big step since I was a guy that was skeptical uh, about Tatis coming off of his 2019 season. I was worried a little bit about his back. I was worried about some swing and miss in his game. He answered all those questions for me last season. He's got power. He's got speed. He hits the ball hard. And he's still so young that as great as he's been so far, you could still imagine that there's another level that he might be able to unlock. Yeah, I think the most exciting part is the cut and strikeouts. Um, and you know, strikeouts do improve till uh, about 24, 25. Uh, you might uh, take a look at Giancarlo Stanton's uh, strikeout rate to get a sense of what a, a bell curve might look like or what aging looks like. Uh, he improved his strikeout rate the first few years. Uh, now that he's on the wrong end of his peak, um, I think those are coming back. So um, I think that you know Tatis will strike out 30% again in his career. But, um, you know, the fact that every every projection is projecting to regress to about 26, 27 percent, there's actually, you know, some untapped potential beyond his projections. That means if he keeps his strikeout rate below 24 percent or even improves it to 22 or 21 percent, we're talking about a player who can be the best in the game. Yeah, an elite of the elite, like a guy that stands out where his best season stacks up in a project goat sort of way. Like that's the type of, of ceiling we're looking at now. So uh, I really like what we saw from him throughout the shortened season and the projections are through the roof. I mean, a 280 average across the board, high thirties in the home run totals, 25 plus steals pretty much everywhere. Mm. I think zips might be at 24. I mean, what more could you ask for? Uh, Tatis versus Acuna is kind of a fun debate up top on boards, I really don't think you can go wrong with either one of those players. I think you're positioning yourself with a five-category player that uh, is 
an advantage as we go through the board. And we've talked about this being a different year and being at the end of the draft order, not being as bad as it normally is, but being at the very beginning is a good thing. And Tatis is absolutely part of the reason why. One last note about him. I just wanted to look at his minor league strikeout rates for a second. And um, I do want to mention that there's been some research that a high um, a high strikeout rate in the minors is not always a terrible thing. Uh, it just leads to a kind of high ceiling, low floor situation. Um, and so if you have great scouting grades on a player alongside high strikeout rates and a poor major league projection, I wouldn't always immediately think about the floor. Hmm. So I think this is relevant for Joe Adele. We've seen some of Joe Adele in the major leagues, and it wasn't great. But he still lands in that high floor, high low floor, high ceiling um, area where he could still have an outcome that looks a little bit like this. So that's something to think about. I don't know. I I don't like. I, do you understand why that would be? I guess they're swinging a lot in the minors and they're just there's a chance that they get the pitch selection right and then they're an aggressive great major league hitter or i like i don't understand why that would be i would think if they have high strikeout rate into the minors they don't have a great hit tool and so therefore they won't be a great major leaguer right well i'm, but, I'm thinking about the problem in reverse though where we've had players cruise through the minors with you know sub 20 percent k rates they get to the big leagues mm-hmm. they're close to 30 percent and they can't get that number back down and it's yeah, like it's weird if that can be a path, then the opposite could also be a path. But the why part is is pretty fascinating. So uh, yeah. I, I want to think about that some more. Maybe it's a topic we'll come back around on at some point. And that's a great one. If you've, if you've got a theory, pass it our way because we're going to do a pretty big mailbag episode on Friday. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com if you'd like to contribute to that. we got a lot of great questions already. So uh, no guarantees, no promises, but we'll do our best to answer as many of those questions as we can at the end of this week. But moving past Tatis, Trey Turner is the other early first-rounder that I really like. I play in a lot of leagues where you can't make trades, or at least where trades are very difficult to make. We've talked a lot about our fear of not having enough steals. Trey Turner is going to provide that. He's not at an age yet where I'm really worried about the stolen bases falling off. Uh, 12 for 16 is a base dealer in the shortened season. It kind of puts him right in that similar pace to the 25 or 30 range sort of floor, but obviously there's room for him to get up into the 40s. He's done that twice already. The thing I really like about Trey Turner, though, you know, he has more power than people realize. You could see it in the slugging percentages. You can see it in the stat cast numbers. You could even see it in the home run totals if you realize that in 2019, the 19 home runs he hit came in just 122 games. And if you realize that he hit 12 in the shortened season in 59 games. So maybe the the increase in power is the biggest threat to Trey Turner not being a 30-plus steals guy, but he's going to contribute in both of those categories in a big way. I think 30-30 is actually a possible ceiling-type season for him. He doesn't have to do that to return value in the first round. It's a Nats lineup that, for all the flaws that team has defensively, they should still put plenty of runs on the board this year as well. So, Trey Turner is one of those guys where if I'm in that 5-6 spot and I'm not quite sure what to do, I'd like taking him because at least I'm addressing all the categories and I'm still very confident in the speed in particular. 
Yeah, yeah. The floor seems so high, and it's in a category that's so useful that I agree with you. He's a definite first-rounder, top five, top six type player. Um, you know, if you, I think the floor for him is, you know, just another season where he hits kind of 15 to 20 homers. But if you look at what has happened since he broke his finger, and I, would, I wouldn't say it's because he broke his finger, but um, maybe just getting healthy off of that, and maybe some changes he made along alongside that. Um, he's he's been a powerful guy uh, since you know midway through the 2019 season. He's been a guy who's had a 200 plus ISO, um, and and so you know, and the bad X thinks that the the, the underlying um, Statcast stuff uh, uh, likes him um, and and has him for a 195 ISO. So um, you know, you see that nine percent barrel rate. Uh, you see a very steady max exit velocity. Um, I see a guy who's uh, just learning to hit the ball harder. I'm all in on him. Yeah, no hesitations whatsoever. A player I would target all the time at ADP and snakes in auctions, uh, on a boat, on a plane, on a train. <laughs> uh, reverse green eggs and ham. Like All those conditions would <laughs> want Trey Turner on my team in all those different situations. Uh, you look at Trevor Story, he's also carrying a first-round ADP right now. Other than getting traded out of Colorado, I don't really see how he's going to fall out of the first round. I mean, and even if he did leave the Rockies, I trust his speed. I, I think he's got a pretty nice floor himself, and I think some of the contact issues we saw from Story when he first arrived in the big leagues, those have at least been slightly reduced. I don't know if he's ever going to be a great hitter in terms of having a low K rate, but I think he can stay in that 24, 25, 26% range. It's been three years now where he's done that, where he stayed under 30. So I think that's a skill that he owns. He draws his walks and he's efficient as a base dealer as well. So maybe not the same stolen base ceiling as someone like Trey Turner, but definitely a higher power floor and a higher power ceiling than Trey Turner, regardless of where he's playing. I think if he got traded using Zimmerman's sort of two and two and one with the home away splits, he would be a hitter that hit something like 270 with a 340, 345 type OBP. Um, I think you would have right now you have about a 180 difference. So I think you'd still have about a 500 slugging. Um, so that's a pretty good player. <laughs> even mm -hmm. even with those numbers, um, you know, 500 slugging on, a, you know, a, a 270 that's still uh, very similar, 230 ISO, you know? The ISO may not change that much. Um, so I think he'd just be a little bit um, less of a batting average help. I mean, you see those BABIPs, that's a little bit Coors inflated. Um, so, you know, 270, 30 homers, um, and he'd still get his 25, 30 steals. So I think, you know, if he gets traded out, I think that would be, he'd be actually kind of a, like a value, you know? People would, I think people would, ascribe too much of his uh, brilliance to, to Coors. And um, he particularly, you know, has at times struggled with, you know, pitch selection and the strikeout rate and stuff. It may be useful to him to kind of live a more normal life <laughs> in terms of, you know, not always seeing fastballs at home and then seeing breaking balls on the road. So um, I, I think um, I would, I would actually maybe bump story up relative to other people. If, if he left Coors. Um, another thing to mention is that Buster only reported um, recently that um, the Rockies 
should extend Story or trade him, and they don't look like they're doing either, which I believe prompted you to text that to me and say, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Is that you? Yeah, uh, that was me. <laughs> and then uh, I I should stay out of the company MLB Slack channel uh, as documented by uh, Agent <laughs> Rachel Luba. I don't have Hall of Fame votes. I, I don't vote on awards. Uh, I'm not actually a baseball writer. I'm just a floating head talking about fantasy baseball. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, there was a, a thread going about shortstops available via trade, and it started with who else is out there besides Story. And like a jerk, I just asked the open-ended question to everybody, would the Rockies actually trade him? Because I don't think they're smart enough to do it. I think they're going to stay exactly on that course where they wait too long and trade him for less than they should get, or they get him close up to free agency where he just says, well, I'm just going to test the open market now. Like, Why would I commit to staying here? There's no... No semblance of this organization figuring, figuring yeah, it not, out. So he's not looking, you know, to his right, seeing Nolan Arenado, and be like, "Yeah, I want that." Yeah. Does Does Nolan seem happy? Hmm, not really. <laughs> so maybe I should choose to sign my long term deal somewhere else. So I think they'd be wise to trade him now, and that's probably why they won't, because I am not in lockstep with them. Yeah. Right. Well, imagine what a balance of power shift it would be to trade Story and Arenado together. Oh man. To try and clean off that debt and actually maybe actually get some prospects back as opposed to an Arenado salary dump. Uh, and it may take somebody of Story's quality to, 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 but I think that, you know, that, that left the building with the Mets. Yeah, you uh, need a really Dodgers big payroll team to absorb all that. Do something like that. Dodgers are pretty close to the seller cap. I mean, not, it's not a cap, but they're treating it as such, I think, in most places. The Yankees. Um, seemed like they just dumped salary in Adam Ottavino, so it's not like they're going to pull something like this. The Red Sox aren't good enough to go over the cap. I don't, I don't know who's left to kind of pull this move. The Padres seem like they've shot their bullets. <laughs> you know who could pull the it Braves? off? I don't know if they have the prospect capital to do it, but the Brewers don't really have a, a firm left side of the infield. You know, I, oh, I, that'd be funny actually, because the Brewers do weird stuff, but I don't know. That's a lot what are they going to send back? What, what, what are you going to give the Rockies? Even, even if you get the, okay, even if Mark Atanasio says, yeah, this makes sense. Let's try this. Let's really try this and win a title. What goes back think, in that deal? I actually don't think that um, the prospect, I think, I think this would be an opportunity for somebody I, I can't. I cannot get in Jeff Burdett's head because I can't. I, I, I can't, don't can't find the road. Yeah, I can't find the road in. <laughs> it's like when, when you're trying to get to this like hidden state park or something. It wouldn't be a state park, but you're trying to find this park, and you're like, it's off this old dirt road, and you can't even find the dirt road to even begin <laughs> a right. trek toward the park. That's that's where it's at. Um, I. I would think that you would be starting a rebuild because right now, by positional war, they have. Uh, Three, I think, <laughs> where the best teams have like twenty three, um, so they're they uh, like are perilously close to replacement level teams, so they need to to sell a lot of pieces. Herman Marquez brings you the most prospect capital back. Um, pairing Story and Arenado would would get you the most uh, financial relief. I think both of those would mean that you anticipate losing your job. That's why it's not happening. Yeah, that's that's my also. Way. 
He has to pretend like they're going to be a good team next year. The even more difficult thing to do, get inside the mind of, of Dick Monfort, the owner of the Rockies. The <laughs> Believing guy. him again. Oh, you said they were going to win 94 last year. How did that go? <laughs> right. So get inside his head. If, if you're going to trade these players and take this massive hit with your fan base for trading away stars, you don't want your current GM to do that. We've, we've harped on this before. Like, right. You make the get, change you let your in the new front guy office. Come in. Yes. Get your new people in place. And then start this process. But what but new guy wants to take too. the job? What new guy wants to take the job with the first thing you got to do is blow up all the stars? Remember, what does AJ Prello do when he lands in San Diego? He acquires. He d- and I think he did it fully knowing that this is the team he wanted to win. Not that one. So he went and got Kimbrell and Upton and those guys. But I don't think he ever thought that they would win with them. And they won one more game than they averaged in the four years before. I had an article up today about winning the offseason. What did John Coppolello do when he landed in Atlanta? He made he broke the record since 1996. He broke the record in number of uh, offseason acquisitions. How did they do under him? Blah. Uh, I should point out that we have this, this show available on YouTube. So if you've uh, enjoyed listening to Rates and Barrels and you want to see the faces we make and the thumbs down that I just... Uh, through on yeah. screen after the how did the Braves do question uh, you can do that just search for rates and barrels on YouTube so well I, we've, we've digressed too far we do this it's 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 always the Rockies I am very sorry <laughs> yeah. I'm very very sorry they okay. do this to us damn Rockies anyway story good in Colorado good outside of Colorado yes team should want to trade for him Let's go to Francisco Lindor. Yeah. He's been in the top five range in the past. I think he could still return a season like that. I have no problem with him at the one-two turn. Whatever he lost in park factors in Cleveland by going to City Field, I think he gains by being in an even deeper lineup. I think those counting stats are really safe. I think the speed can still be there. The power is still legit. I really don't have anything unique or intelligent to say about Francisco Lindor. I think the Mets were very wise to trade for him when they could because I think he is a legitimate star and he's still a star in our game as well. Anything for you on Lindor to add? I mean, he's playing for the next contract. Uh, it might be with the Mets. I'm not saying it's, you know, he's going to sign somewhere else, but uh, he's playing to, to prove himself a little bit. Um, and this is the same Francisco Lindor. If you want to sort of poo-poo these, these soft things, and I used to be a person like this where, you know, this sort of thing would bug me and it has nothing to do with the numbers and just look at the projections. Francisco Lindor himself outperformed his minor league numbers when he got to the major leagues. And he himself said that he was bored in the minor leagues. So is it possible that he was a little bored in Cleveland where he's like, oh, they're never going to do what it takes to be a better team. And this is we're just going to always exit in the first round type of situation. I think he'll be energized by uh, going to the Mets. He'll he'll, ha- he'll see this opportunity uh, to sign a long term deal with an, in the New York market, um, and I, I think he'll have a great season. And then the numbers argument is just he had barrel rates in the sort of seven to nine percent range for three straight years. Last year dropped to five point six. You would regress that back up, so you would expect him to at least have his career barrel rate of six point two percent or maybe higher, seven eight percent. That'll offset, like you said, some of the park factors, I think. Um, and uh, some evidence for that comes in the fact that the Bat X, despite Derek Cardi thinking 
um, that, uh, you know, he's been one that's been talking about how the Mets park and the Cleveland park separated some of themselves. Um, uh, he still has a 31 homer projection for Lindor in the bad X. So pretty safe for, uh, kind of two thirty, uh, 30, 30 homers, 20 stolen bases, two seventy kind of batting average. I, I think all good things really, as it pertains to Lindor at this point, uh, a couple shortstops in the second round ADP range two kind of back to back Adalberto Mondesi, and Bo Bichette, I don't think you could really make two players the same position who are more different. Like Bo Bichette, like all hit tool, but brings obviously power and speed with it. Mondesi, just wide range of outcomes, off the chart speed. Uh, like Bichette, uh, what I mean by this, Bichette to me seems like a guy that always has a very stable floor. Like his floor seasons are pre-power DJ LeMayhew type seasons. If things go wrong for him, he's going to hit for a good average. He's going to get to a little bit of power. He's going to steal some bases, and he's going to have a pretty prominent spot in a good lineup. So all those things are great. I think the problem I have with Bichette is that while I see what everyone else sees and while I want him to be a star, that's a very limited track record for a player sitting inside the top 25 overall right now. So I have not been comfortable taking Bichette in the second round to this point. I'm curious to know if you have a case that could be made for me to actually take him there. There's Bichette owns one of the largest discrepancies between the bad X and uh, steamer. And I was surprised by that. Um, and then I looked closer and the source is the stolen base projection. Hmm. Um, I don't know. There are some stat cast numbers that are relevant to this, and I will pull them up frantically um, as we speak because I know that uh, splits to first base uh, in terms of sprint feed, sprint feed, uh, those are uh, more predictive than uh, a few other things when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to predicting stolen bases. Um, so here I, I've got the ninety foot splits up. Anyway, the point is, Bichette, uh, by the Bad X, 18 stolen bases, by Steamer, 24, uh, by Zips, 27. And his times to first. While you're grabbing that, there's also this lingering question about the Jays and their their philosophy as a team and whether or not they're going to even want to run a lot or whether they're even going to need Mm. to run a lot. Uh, Rob Silver, great NFBC player. We talk about things he puts out there, uh, hosts the Launch Angle Pod with Jeff Zimmerman. He's a Jays fan and a great baseball mind in his own right. Take the under on every Jay stolen base projection. That was uh, among the things he listed out for fantasy takeaways for for a move that made about a week ago. I think that was when they added Springer that he put that little thread out there. And I definitely see the case for that because top to bottom, that's a really strong Jays lineup now that You've already, doesn't you necessarily always... have to manufacture runs that way. Yeah, and is Bo going to be running? Is like is Bo going to be hitting eighth ahead of uh, the only person who might want to run is like the guy hitting eighth in front of uh, the catcher. And I don't think that as good as that lineup is, I don't think Bo Bichette will hit eighth. Um, I guess it's I don't possible. Think so. I don't think so. If it's if he does, then maybe if you find out he's going to hit eighth. <clears throat> maybe mitigate some of this, but he also has the 135th best times to first, which puts him in uh, a group with some Steelers like Shogo Akayama, Akayama, Javier Baez, Jackie Bradley, but also sort of Dylan Carlson and Josh Naylor. 
So uh, Nicky Lopez, who stole fewer bases than we expected, and, Francis, and he's a little bit slower than Francisco Lindor. So I would cap his stolen bases at 20. And I would project him maybe even lower than the current systems have him at around 15, which would yeah. tank his value a little bit. Batting average should be great. I mean, like, that's nice. We got that. And he sprays it all over. He's got good contact ability. Just to give you an example of what um, taking that kind of stolen base total away, just um, by looking at 24 for, in Steamer versus uh, 18 in the Bad X, Bobichet goes from being a $29 player to a $22 player. So there's a big chance that Bobichet is being overdrafted right now. That was my gut feel. And again, like if we're ranking gut feel in the fantasy community, like Vlad Sedler is like way up here at the top, like off the screen, <laughs> and I'm somewhere down shoulder level near where my microphone is in the shot on the video. So uh, I, I trust my instincts, but um, you know, they're they're not world renowned like Vlad's are at this point. So I'm glad. I'm just glad that. I'm not crazy that I, I, I see some reason to be careful with Bichette where he's going. I think you articulated those reasons better than I've been able to to this point. We've probably talked about Adalberto Mondesi more than any other player on this pod. Fair to say. He's at least top five. If we had a word cloud of players we've discussed over the years, uh, Mondesi's letters are pretty big. So... Our tagline could be, these guys don't like Adelbert Mondesi. <laughs> I mean, I want to. Like He he possesses some really fun traits that oh my gosh. I typically like in a baseball player. I I think he's a more complex version of what I now call the Jonathan VR problem, where we have an early round player who has power and he has speed, and he's not necessarily a good real life player even though he is a very good if not even elite fantasy player and when those worlds collide in my little walnut brain it is just very <laughs> difficult for me to make a good decision I mean if you want to argue that Adalberto Mondesi has the talent to become a number one overall pick in the future I would not argue against you he, he has that that's within his range but he could also be the kind of guy that never quite figures out strike zone judgment, continues to strike out so much that the average stays low, doesn't walk enough, the OBP stays low, so he gets buried a little lower in the order than he should, and we're just frustrated because the counting stats don't come out the way they should for someone who goes inside the top 25 overall on a regular basis. So I think there are ways to build teams with Mondesi, I don't think you're crazy for drafting him there, but I completely understand the group of people that say, yeah, I, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. I'll find other ways to get the steals I need from multiple players. Yeah. And this is, this is interesting uh, side note too. Like Bo Bichette, he has a very large discrepancy between steamer and the bad X and the, and it's not because of power. Uh, what I kind of assumed there's a lot of sort of David Fletcher types that are at the, bot at the bottom of this list in terms of discrepancy between the two systems, and that is power-related. But Adalberto Montesi has a 20-home run projection from Steamer and a 21-home run projection from the Bat-X. The Bat-X regresses his BABIP more than any other system. And I think it's fair to do so, because even though this guy is fast, 
He doesn't necessarily hit the ball very hard. And his sort of high BABIP seasons have come all in truncated seasons. In fact, if you add all his high BABIP seasons together, you only get a little bit more than a full season of, of plate appearances. And BABIP is not, the batting average of balls in play is not something you should look at in a one-season sample, ever. So, you know, Derek Hardy regresses that harder. He has a 306 BABIP. That gives Otto Bontemondesi a 237 batting average and a 280 OBP, which I think further heightens the risk of losing his job. He does have the good defense and the base running, and so he'll probably stay on the, in the, in, on the field. But a 280 OBP, you get close to untenable. I think losing his job is clearly worse than him keeping it and being a drain in batting average, but keeping the job and hitting 230 over 600 plate appearances is not a great outcome either. And again, the start value of those steals... A, you start punting that category, really. Yeah, it's, it's just strange to draft a player in the second round who requires you to make a couple of really quick adjustments to your other early round bats you know, to offset that, that batting average risk and the fact that you might be lagging in power right away too. Or just, you know, jump into punting right away. Yeah. If you do, if you do, if you do want to draft him, I would have a sort of punt batting average strategy ready. And that's why I advocate sort of decision trees, especially in auctions and in deeper leagues. Um, if you get out of Bertomondesi, you are in the punt, uh, category switch over to the page that has the plan for punting batting average you know <laughs> and then and just have a whole new set of targets and be like okay these are the guys i'm working with now and punting batting average in al only i think is a decent strategy i've done it a fair amount of times and, and finished high in, in labor but um you know building a a balanced team is better and if you're talking about 12 15 team mono leagues you i don't think you want to punt any any category yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a difference just in how we describe it. Punting batting average and and not caring about it would be the like there's kind of a line there. Like punting to me is almost like actively seeking out the low average big power guys after you draft Mondesi. I think you could just make sure you're not paying a premium for guys that are bringing a lot of value in that category. You, you don't want 270, 280, 290 hitters later on who are a little light in power or a little light in speed in the early rounds. Cause I feel like that's not necessarily a, a punt. It's just sort of saying, I'm going to make sure that I'm not buying something that won't help me that much. You just, just think about the, the series of things that you're going to do after taking Mondesi. I think you're dead on that. Have a path to keep getting average to offset them, but be prepared if you miss out on those players because it's a snake draft to have the, well, all right, I'm just going to move away from average and, and do this instead. Like I think you have to have those plans pretty well mapped out. Uh, part of the reason I don't go after Mondesi or Bichette, and again, very different players, is Bogarts, Ed Corey Seager, and Tim Anderson even, all being available in the next round. I think Xander Bogarts is one of those players that he's not even old, but he gets the old and boring labels somehow. I think he's more of a second-round talent going into third. Yeah, it doesn't run that much, but the batting average is really good. The power is legit. I know that the counting stats ceiling is probably just lower than it was when Mookie Betts played in Boston, but that's not enough to, to ding Bogarts. So I love Bogarts where he's going. I don't really see any red flags there at all. And I think Corey Seager is a similar player because really nice batting average floor, doesn't run, 
good power. I think people might wonder with Seager, is this recency bias putting him back inside the top 40? Or is he just a player that was previously at this level who's finally healthy again? Because that's the position I've taken with Corey Seager to this point. And I'm like hyper aware of players that are significantly more expensive than they were this time last year. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, I, I try to hew close to the StatCast stats. And, um, you know, he had barrel rates of 8, 8.2 and 17 and 18. 19, I think there was that injury. Uh, coming back off that injury, he had a 6.3% barrel rate. Last year, he had a 15.8% barrel rate, one of those kind of league-leading type numbers. I don't think he'll be at that range, but you can regress him back towards that 8 and give him a 9 or a 10% barrel rate, and it would be one of the best in um, in, in the shortstop position. So uh, I'm with you on Seager. Uh, he actually will steal significantly fewer bases uh, than, than Bogart. So I'm a little surprised uh, to, to see how many bases. Like Bogart stole eight bases last year in the short season. That surprises me. I guess I kind of looked away in 2019 when he stole four and said, this is a guy who just steals three or four. So there's a big variance there between, you know, ATC giving him 13 stolen bases um, and the bat giving him six. Yeah, six. The bat X gives him six stolen bases. So that uh, I think that describes some of his upside. You might you might buy him at 28 homers and six stolen bases, and you might get uh, 11, 12, 13 stolen bases from him. That would be really exciting. Here's a would you rather for you. Would you rather? Uh, Xander Bogarts or Ozzy Albies? This was put to me recently in a DM. I would take Bogarts straight up. I think because of the way people draft them, I might be inclined to take Albies instead. And that's because of the shape of the positions. But if you said, which player is just better for this season? Who's going to give you better stats? Slight, slight edge to Bogarts, even though I expect Albies to run more. Yeah, I'm taking Albies. Uh, I'm taking Albies because of the shape of the position and the stolen bases. Same same answer, pretty much. Um, I just hate second base so much, and there's so many short stops. And I will take Albies stolen base total over Xander Bogarts in a second. I will take um, Bogarts power, but by by fewer and I also think the homers are worth less than the stolen bases these days. Uh, I think they will both hit for a similar average. And Albies might actually have better runs in RBI. Yeah, I think that Atlanta lineup has a chance to be better also than Boston's think, yeah, lineup. Yeah, Atlanta's not done, I would say, too. That'd be nice if they added one more piece there. Uh, let's talk about Tim Anderson for a minute, because increasingly he's a player that I had underrated. I've just come to realize like, I was flat out wrong. I think a lot of my evaluation of Tim Anderson was clouded from the plate skills that he brought into the league with him. Uh, I think that's still in my mind, but it works for him. He runs well. He hits the ball hard. I'd, I'd like him to hit the ball in the air more often. I think the spike in ground ball rate in the shortened season is a little bit jarring when you see that he hit 10 homers in 49 games last year. It's a really good pace power-wise for him. Uh, but he does a little bit of everything, and I'm really warming up to the idea that what we've seen from him over 2019 and 2020 isn't necessarily a complete fluke in the batting average department. Like, sure, no one's projecting over 300, but this is a guy that we used to think was going to hit like 240 or 250, and now projections are 
at a low end of steamer at 274 and up to 291 for zips. I mean, that's a pretty big jump from the player that I and many people expected Tim Anderson to be upon arrival. Statcast um, Savant has his expected batting average in the last two seasons is 295 basically combined. Um, you know, he got his bail rate up to 10% last year. So I, I think that he's got a good idea of how to hit the ball hard, you know, how to put the ball in the air uh, when he's hitting it hard. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot more red on this Statcast page than I thought. Also, top 20 sprint speed. Uh, to first base. So, you know, if you're wondering like five stolen bases, you do the 2.5, you're like, ooh, am I only going to get, you know, 10, 12 stolen bases next year? I don't know. I, I, I see him as a little bit streaky at times and uh, also as someone who is um, brings his level of play up to, to meet that of his teammates. You know what I mean? I think the White Sox are going to be good. I think they'll be run by uh, a little bit old school tenants. So I I could see him uh, stealing as many as 25 next year. I mean, he's got the speed for it. I think Tony Rulers will let him go if, if they're, if they're scoring and they're doing well. And um, I don't think it'll necessarily always be uh well, I can't steal here because this great batter is up. I think, um, you know, this will be a team that'll be aggressive and try to score runs in all sorts of different ways. So, um, I'll take the, you know, you see the bad X uh, gives him 20 stolen bases versus Steamer 17. That's partially probably due to those first base splits. And I, I think that if there is upside in this line, it is in the stolen base category. Yeah, good balanced player. Just does everything really well and gets knocked too much for not walking. At least he was knocked too much by me for not walking. Uh, all the things he does well outweigh the one thing that he doesn't do very well. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. There's a big break before you get to the next group of shortstops. You've got Glaber Torres right around pick 70. Javi Baez a couple spots later. Another jump down before you get to Dansby Swanson around the pick 105 range. And Carlos Correa just a couple rounds after that. I don't think that much separates Glaber Torres from Carlos Correa in terms of my expectations and I say that as someone who believes that Torres is actually a little undervalued. I know a lot of the damage he did in 2019 came against the Orioles. We've talked about that a ton. But he's the shortstop for a really good Yankees team. Counting stats should be great. We know the park's great. And he's also in the group of players that because of his age, it's entirely possible that we have not seen the best of Glaber Torres just yet. He's just 24 years old. Turned 24 in December. 
kind of has the Bogarts reputation, doesn't run much, had five steals in 2019, had one in the shortened season. The power drop-off last year to me, that, that's not at all who Glaber Torres is. He slugged 480 as a 21-year-old in 2018 and slugged 535 in 2019. So a sub-400 slugging percentage from Glaber in 42 games means almost nothing to me. Uh, what's your sort of long-term outlook for Torres? I mean, maybe getting more than 38 home runs is asking for way too much. I'm not looking for that. But I think he can get back close to that level and maybe do it with better counting stats as he becomes an even better hitter than he's shown to this point. Yeah, I'm all in. I saw enough. You see his swing rates were kind of dra- drastically different in the beginning and end part of the season. Um, he got peppered with slider after slider. You saw that career uh, high level of, uh, of walks. So I, I think that he'll put together the aggression and the patience. Um you know, to go from, you know, walking 7.9% of the time to 13.8% uh, in one season while also cutting your strikeout rate, I think that actually speaks really highly of him. Power is one of the, le- the things that becomes, is the most least meaningful in small samples. So if you look at his line, you say, whoa, he almost doubled his walk rate uh, and he cut his strikeout rate. Don't tell me about his ISO. Don't tell me about his ISO in 160 plate appearances. I don't, I don't care. So, um, yeah, I'm buying on Torres and, um, I would, I want to know from you, uh, the surrounding players or just sort of the ADP, the kind of context, uh, for Swanson and Torres and maybe put them, put them up against Baez. Yeah. I mean, Torres and Baez are right next to each other. 70 and 72 are their ADPs since January 1st. If you look at some other names in that range, Brandon Lau is going around that time. We talked about him on the second base preview. Uh, if you're looking at pitchers, Denelson Lamette. If you're looking at outfielders, Teoscar Hernandez and Michael Conforto go around that time. Uh, Sal Perez goes around there. If you're going to get into the catcher market there, uh, I think I like every direction other than catcher in that spot. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I like the shortstops Actually, I, all I like right. I like shortstop there a lot. I like shortstop there a lot. I think if you if you didn't if you didn't buy one of the of the early ones and and we, we're sort of we're sort of suggesting that like Tatis Turner Story Lindor is we're in we're back out again for Bo and Mondesi maybe we jump back in again around Seager, Seager Anderson Bogarts um, that this is I'm sort of following the bad X so if that doesn't follow the ADP that's but we're started. We're we're, we're we're you started feeling like a little cadence from us, you know. We're in on the very top. We're out on some of the you know the secondary top. We're back in here. I'm I'm all in uh, on Torres and Baez. The only thing that makes me think twice sometimes is how I think there's a big difference between Swanson's projection by the bad X. He's projected to be in there with Baez and Torres. It's one of the biggest differences between the Badex and Steamer in the positive way. He's like, I think, second or third. And, um, you know, he's got an $18 projection here. Torres is at 16 and buys at 19. Where's Desmi Swanson's ADP? Swanson's at 105 overall. And this it's kind of this little pocket on the ADP report where you could see some stuff going wrong. Uh, uh, Dylan Bundy at 104. I mean, I know he was great and things changed for him with the Angels. Like, I don't love him there. Chris Paddock is okay, not great in that spot. I think I believe in Dominic Smith as a hitter. I'm a little concerned about possible crowding. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so for like his skills, I I think he belongs there and probably higher, but for his 
possible playing time issues. Maybe there's risk there. You know, James Karinchak, I think, is risky in that range. Ooh, wow. Matt Chapman's coming off of surgery. Zach Grinky's old. I love Swanson there, like against all those other players. The only thing I I don't want to necessarily do, and this is my point about if you take the if you just look at points and don't have the position adjustment for shortstop, these all these guys we're talking about are top hitters. They're young. They're stars. You know, they're put at shortstop for a reason. They're all great hitters without the positional aspect. So I wouldn't be afraid of dipping in and getting a second shortstop and, and getting Swanson there as opposed to some of those other question marks, even if it means you just bought your MI before your second outfielder, before your catcher. You know, I think it's okay. I think it's okay to do that. That's how loaded shortstop is. Right. I think this sort of drives home a point I made in the last episode about playing time and roles. Shortstops don't usually sit. They don't platoon. They don't move around much. Those guys, they're there and they're in the lineup as much as they're physically able to play. And I think that's where I think you're you're fine to go ahead and take a, a pick 100 or pick 125 range shortstop as your middle infielder, even if you already took one earlier. I'm completely with you on this one. I think Carlos Correa is part of this group for me, even though for now at least he's falling a bit more. I don't know if you saw Mike Petriello's piece on, I want to say, Tuesday, where he was taking a look at putting the postseason numbers on the regular season numbers from the shortened season and just seeing who moved up the most, who fell the most. Uh, obviously, we know a few guys that had some pretty rough postseasons, a couple Rays, Willie Adames, Brandon Lau, I think were among the players that took the biggest hits if you combine those things. Carlos Correa was one of the players who got one of the biggest bumps up if you counted what he was doing in the postseason on top of what he did in the regular season. And I know that's sort of, in some ways, kind of cherry-picking a narrative. It's not something any of us would really do over a 162-game season because then you're just adding a little bit of noise from late in the year. But relative to the size of the 2020 season, I think it is worth looking at. And I think with Correa, maybe the ceiling's not as high as we once thought. But you're telling me that he's not a top 100 overall player? I, I think he's more of like a top 60, top 70 guy. So he's several rounds undervalued. Like For whatever discount you're getting on Glaber Torres, and I think that's a significant discount, I think you might be getting an even bigger discount on Correa at this point. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not a slave to to projections. You know, the bad X says Correa is behind De Jong, Polanco, uh, Chris Taylor. That's a depth chart thing right now, I think. And Marcus Simeon, I would put Correa right up against that Baez, Swanson, Torres group. Um, I think it would be Swanson, Correa, and that would probably round out my top 10, 3, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, my top 12, top 15, that sort of deal. Um, I'm having, I'm putting Correa up in there. Um, and, uh, especially with the Anderson Simmons signing in, uh, Minnesota, I think with Paul DeYoung's strikeout rate, he has, uh, some high variance seasons in him. Chris Taylor is going to end up being more of a backup than he looks like right now on the depth charts. Um, so that is my reasoning. And then it actually falls off a fair amount after that. So Correa is in some ways my last acceptable shortstop. Yeah, if you didn't have a starting shortstop yet, he's one of your last chances to get someone that plays a lot, is already good, but also could have his best healthy season yet. Like That's still a possibility from him. You know who does well also, if you add a little bit more information, is Marcus Simeon. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's right there. I would put Simeon after Korea, even though uh, the bad X says it's opposite. Um, the one reason I have there is, I mean, he could play every day, um, but he also, I think, offers some flexibility. And that lineup is, you know, I wonder if anybody's going to get to like 660 plate appearances. It's not because they're going to want to sit people. It's just that they've built, they built champ, they built a championship lineup, I think, honestly, in Toronto. And I think the idea is if someone's hurt, you can sit them. You know, if you, if your numbers say they could get hurt soon, you sit them proactively. I mean, they have a, they have a depth. I would say they have a quality, they have quality depth at every spot in their, uh, in their, uh, in their lineup, right? I mean, you know, Simeon can back up Bichette. Biggio can back up Simeon. Uh, Biggio and Guerrero have third. Gritcha can back up Springer. Uh, Teoscar backs up Guerrero. Um, you know, Telez backs everybody up by, by playing, uh, at first or a DH. I mean, I don't, I don't actually think they're going to make a trade. There's some people, you know, considering they'll make a trade. If they can't get a, another starting pitcher that they want in free agency, they might consider a trade. You know, Sonny Gray and Herman Marquez come to mind. But even then, they might want to trade minor league depth rather than trade someone like Rowdy Telez. Right. Well, I think with Simeon, too, just kind of closing the book on him, like, I know, at his best, he was maxing out playing time in Oakland, but there's a lot to like there. If you look at his last two seasons combined, 40 homers, 151 runs, 115 RBIs, and 14 steals. You're looking for 40 homer, 10 steal guys just from 19 and 20 combined. That's a pretty short list, actually. And you could probably justify Marcus Simeon right around pick 100. He's previously going in the 140, 150 range because no one knew where he was going to play. I think the Jays are all, as a group, probably going to catch some helium. Everyone's realizing how good this lineup is. That's going to bump nearly everybody up. Uh, I do think the playing time concerns you've outlined are, are legit for pretty much everybody. I mean, if you had to if you had to list any player, like who in that lineup isn't susceptible to just being rested because of depth? Would you say like Springer probably is the one guy that just plays a ton. Maybe. I mean, you also want to make sure he doesn't get hurt. And, uh, and you know, you made a great point about shortstops playing every day, but Marcus Simeon played shortstop last year. <laughs> you know, it's not like, uh, not like, oh, he can play shortstop in a pinch. It's like, well, he's a shortstop. We're moving to second base. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, and I think Simeon would be happy to play short if it, you know, he's going to be back on the market again next year. So he'd, he'd be happy to play different positions and show off his versatility for the, for, for teams. Yeah. He's, I think a really nice addition for the Jays, especially, but was definitely undervalued before. I want to see where his ADP goes in the next couple of weeks. I think that's where the drop off is though. Once you get past Simeon, especially, you know, Hassan Kim, based on the way that the Padres are built, I have a lot of concerns about his playing time. We've talked about a couple positions where Jake Cronenworth is eligible. He's a player that I'm staying away from just because they've got depth all over the place in San Diego. They brought back Profar, which they were crowded before they did that. And I know they're going to play Profar a lot uh, in the outfield, but that to me makes everything with the Padres mid-rounders really difficult to rely on from a playing time perspective. So I'm sort of out on Kim and Cronenworth, not because I don't like them as players, but because I think they are two-thirds, three-quarters playing time shares guys 
when it all says it when it's all said and done. And I can't draft players like that inside the top 200. And even if there is a winner, there could just be a winner and a loser. You know what I mean? Like, um, if you're drafting Kim or Cronenworth, I think you want to draft them in a place where you could lose and you could just drop them. Yeah, shallow mixers. Because Kim, Kim has the ceiling, I think, to take a position. Um, he had the offensive ceiling when I looked at it of a Didi Gregorius um, uh, uh, or a Segura. And I think if you take, you know, if you t- if you looked at it and you said Kim is Segura, I think you give him that second base job and you make Cronenworth uh, more of a, a utility guy, especially if Cronenworth takes any step backwards. Um, this team is definitely ready for universal DH, though. Uh, I think they would pretty much stick Will Myers in there and then do kind of a Cronenworth pro far outfield tandem. Yeah, universal DH does alleviate some of that pressure. Uh, Andres Jimenez, who I think we talked about a bit, well, at least after the big trade that sent Lindor to New York, but I think Jimenez, he's eligible at second, third, and short. Obviously has some speed. Very young. Could get a lot better as a hitter. Cesar Hernandez returning to Cleveland is a little bit problematic for me. I know there are whispers that Jose Ramirez could be traded. Maybe that that actually happens. I still think that's more likely than not just the rumor mill doing its thing. Uh, But now I'm having the same sort of doubts about Jimenez that I had about Cronenworth as things got more crowded there. It's not that I don't like Jimenez as a player. It's just that he's not necessarily getting a full playing time share right away. Like, Sure, 2022 is Andres Jimenez an everyday player in Cleveland. More likely than not, I think he is. But 2021 could be a totally different story now. How did this team get so crappy so quick, dude? Josh <laughs> Naylor, Oscar Mercado, Daniel, Daniel Johnson Jr.? What? Of, of all the things they needed... Bringing back Cesar Hernandez really wasn't it. Uh, Maddening, isn't it? It's the mm, they they like they need unexpected Jose Ramirez like outcomes for half their lineup. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe they really believe in that model. Maybe they see something in Jose Ramirez where they said, "Okay, if we have plate if if we have plate discipline and contact." And we try to coach the power out of that, then we'll be good. That seems to kind of, does that sort of describe what they have? A lot of their guys don't have big strikeout rates. They have decent play discipline. They haven't really shown the power you want. That describes everybody but Fran Mill Reyes almost. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could talk myself into a few players that they're relying on. I, I've always liked Josh Naylor as just a pure hitter. I think there could be. There could be another level for him power-wise that we haven't seen yet. That wouldn't be all that surprising. I thought the 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 boost going from San Diego to Cleveland was good for him. Right. Zimmer has like a 10% chance of, of putting together something pretty exciting in terms of the tools he's got, I guess. I actually uh, like Daniel Johnson quite a bit. I, I you think said he was he's, a speedy guy, right? Yeah, he's a little bit of an underrated prospect. Uh, does have a pretty good idea with the zone. We saw some really nice walk rates from him at AA and AAA. Doesn't strike out a lot. Uh, defensively, uh, I thought I saw like a big big arm grade or something on him, but he's only got a 50 fielding grade. But nevertheless, uh, Daniel Johnson's one of those guys that if they're going to let him play, I'm interested in him late. Uh, but yeah, Cleveland, I just you didn't need another infielder. At least I didn't think they needed another infielder, so I'm pretty surprised to see that. 
looking outside the top 200, Jorge Polanco probably moving to second base on a regular basis with Angleton Simmons now in Minnesota. I mean, that's and a some risk safe assumption. Arias is there. You know? Yeah, so now he's got some playing time concerns. So, uh, yeah, I would say Polanco, I would not project him for 647 plate appearances. You just have to bake some of that risk in and, ba- and project him for like 550 or something. It gets kind of ugly because, you know, you get past the teams that are like, this is our shortstop. He is our shortstop. We like our shortstop, you know? <laughs> and once you get mm-hmm. past that, you're like, these are some guys. <laughs> some These of them some guys that says like they, they're short players and yeah but they're not actually a shortstop <laughs> some of these guys we mm-hmm. hope are not our shortstop like orlando arcia <laughs> yep <laughs> some of these guys used to be shortstops and aren't anymore you know <laughs> uh willie castro sticks out for me i liked him a lot going into last season yeah he has a poor projection from uh the bad x it says he's um uh below replacement level for a 15 team league uh but in mono leagues we're talking about a 23 year old who showed uh this kind of power in the minor leagues and glimpses of it at least uh struck out too much his first time and then struck out a little bit less the second time at the league i think he could strike out even less the next time has a chance to kind of combine that power and contact and be an exciting player uh everyone projects him for eight to ten stolen bases i don't really know if that's coming but um, also a guy that I think the Tigers will plug and play. So I, I, I'm I'm decently in on him. Yeah, I, I think he's pretty stable in terms of the opportunities. Uh, Paul DeYoung, you mentioned kind of just boring, but he's going to play a lot. That's a good volume grab, solid MI option going around pick 225 at this point. Uh, we talked about Mauricio Dubon, I think, on our second base episode. So there's not a ton to rehash there. Uh, Ahmed Rosario, I think we talked about it after the trade. I mean, I I still see reasons to like How him. How about Galvis? Freddie Galvis is not a player I've ever liked, but in Baltimore. <laughs> but think all, all the things I said about Wilson Ramos are generally true of Freddie Galvis. Like now he's got an excess of playing time, and he's probably going to be higher in the batting order there than he would have been if he'd returned to Cincinnati, right? He would have been buried in the in the lineup there. So nice I can see Galvis exceeding expectations relative to price pretty Injury easily. Injury news today. Richie Martin has a handmade bone broke break. Mm. Man, he's had some pretty unfortunate turns with the occasional path to playing time being open, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, how about long shots? I've got I've got one, I think. I mean a long shot that I still actually kind of like, in addition to Galvis, I would say is Simmons. Simmons just plays a lot. I mm. think that's. I don't think he's exciting as a hitter at all, uh, but I do think if he stays in the 350, 400 range, one of your last picks, I think he'll be okay for deeper leagues. I don't know if he's going to do enough to make much of an impact in like a 12-team league, but at least in a 15, I think he deserves to be rostered. Uh, do you have long shots that are prospects or that are non-prospects, I should say? Because I think that the prospects at shortstop are always pretty interesting. Right. This one is somewhere in between. And it's um, it's one of those things that's like uh, a feeling. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it, I can't give you a great argument for him. J.P. Crawford. The, the argument that I have is I like the plate skills. Best strikeout rate of his career, 10% walk rate. That's a good place to start. 
you think about some of your better hitters that kind of surprised later, Robbie Grossman, Jed Lowry, those types, a lot of them started with good sense of the plate and then got the most out of the balls they that they targeted, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You don't look at the stat cast and see anything you like other than the fact that he had the best max EV of his career last year. It still wasn't a great one. Um, the barrel rates are tiny. Um, I even saw something... Um, you know, from I think it was Alex Chamberlain about um, when it was actually Ben Clements on on Vangrass, when somebody hits the ball hard, um, you know, how much variance do they have in that in that launch angle? Like how, you know, how like how stuck are they around that angle? And apparently Crawford is one of these people um, who s- hits the ball hard in very small degree of angles, and it's always at the ground. Um, so that is a problem, but. Uh, there's this idea that like, okay, we've got this guy with good plate discipline and he can hit the ball hard, but when he hits the ball hard, he hits in the ground. What if there's like a mechanical tweak or an approach tweak there that just changes that, that one aspect of him as a hitter, mm-hmm. you know, then I, I think it's entirely possible. Then we would be talking about a guy who could maybe have a league average BABIP. Everyone's projecting for less than that. If he had a league average BABIP, then we were talking about a guy who can hit 250, 260 with a good OBP. Maybe he goes up in the lineup. Maybe he has 15 to 20 homers and 10 stolen bases. There's something about him. Plus, you know, there's this deep, it's more of a deep league thing anyway. Plus, there's this deep league thing of like, hey, the Mariners, like with Castro, they're just going to play him, man. He's going to get a full slate. He's going to get his first full season, and it could be a breakout one. Yeah, and for all the prospects they have, uh, like or Noel V. Marte is not close to pushing just yet. It's going to be another yeah. year, I think, before Crawford's worried about playing time as a result of Marte's development. Uh, I think that's a good call for for deeper leagues. You know, on the prospect front, we'll hit these guys pretty quick. We've talked a lot about Wander. I think he's up sooner rather than later. I know the biggest concerns, uh, as brought up, I believe, by our friends over at Prospect Live, Ralph Lifshitz and. Eddie Elmaguer have, have pointed to the low launch angles and and some of the concerns that are kind of bubbling up with Franco. I've said this on under the radar on Tuesday. I think those things are worth acknowledging and worth keeping in mind and filing away maybe for the future almost because when we're talking about a guy as young as Wander, I think we'd be making a pretty big mistake by looking at launch angle and exit velocity and saying... Yeah, let's let's come down off number that's one it. prospect. That's what, and I, that's what he is. And I don't know if that's what they're necessarily saying. I think they're just kind of raising this as a hey, just just know this is there. Right. I think that's still a mistake. I still I still think, even though I want that information, I care more about how a player performs age to level relative to competition. And Franco's off the charts good. And maybe there's some concerns about the power projection. You know, if the future Fangraphs grade of 60 is too high, we'd, we'd want to know that. But it, what makes him a lead is more the hit tool, I think. So, oh, yeah. You yeah, know, if sure. he hits 20 homers rather than 30, I think he'll still be, he'll still have a really high batting average OBP. He'll still be a top of the order hitter. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, that's an interesting one. I, you know, Jazz Rotto, Jazz, um, <laughs> kind of, sticks in my head when we were talking about that um, high variance outcomes when it comes to high strikeout minor league hitters. Um, yes. And as much as it seems like at this point that uh, Jazz is um, 
has shown that he's no good or whatever. It's 62 major league plate appearances. Um, you know, I know the projections say he'll strike out even more, but what if he doesn't? <laughs> uh, these strikeout rates are also higher than Tatis's, so I'm not trying to say he's in Tatis's uh, territory, but um, he managed to have some pretty good seasons with high strikeout rates, so I'm interested to see what he does with more playing time. Yeah, I am too. I, I think they're going to give him that path sooner rather than later. He's going almost outside the top 500 in terms of ADP. So he's very late. Wander's outside the top 300 right now too. So they're, they're both draftable. He reminds me, yeah, he reminds me, you know, Wander's going to be the the shiny toy that I think will be drafted fairly high. But you can look behind the shiny toy a lot of times and see um, some some places where people have lost shine but are still in good positions to succeed. And that's why I would say Jazz Chisholm, Royce Lewis, and Brendan Rogers, as much as um, they look less interesting today because of moves the teams have made or not made um, or because of debuts that didn't go so well, all three of those are worthy of considering. And I think maybe Brendan Rogers the most, maybe Lewis the least, just because of where their teams are. Um, but, um, remember what we said about the story thing at some point, it'll become untenable. If the Rockies are bad this year, I think they'll make their general manager trade uh, story and maybe Arenado at the trade deadline, uh, before he hands the team over to somebody who can try and build up, you know? Um, and then Brendan Rogers would get a full-time shot finally someday. Yeah. I think it's health for Brendan Rodgers. So I'm definitely on board with him. Uh, I think Jeter Downs isn't that far away from getting a chance. But the one thing with Downs that I think needs to be thrown out there again, he only saw 12 games at Double A in 2019 before the season was over. So a little extra seasoning for him definitely makes sense. You may have to wait until July. June, July to actually see figure out his, Jeter Downs in the big leagues. Figure out his position too. Some think he might end up at second. Yeah, I think they'll just move Kike around to uh, the utility spot once they decide Jeter Downs is ready. But I, as much as I like him, I just think they they may need to be a little more patient with him than I initially wanted them to be. So uh, I'm trying not to go overboard getting him in normal-sized bench redraft leagues. Uh, AL only, sure, stash him away there. Keeper Dynasty, love him there. Draft and hold, no problem at all. But I just think like in a 15-teamer, the way they're built right now, you're probably not going to be able to hold him long enough on your bench to get the payoff. So he kind of falls into the prospects I like who I can't draft in a mixed league sort of bin if that's a, if that's a bin that can actually exist. Uh, anything else at shortstop that uh, catches your eye before we go? No, I think uh, I think we covered it pretty well. Uh, Daniel Robinson on the on your Brewers is he gonna is he gonna play? He got a major league deal, huh? Well, I mean, like versatility. It's the it's the word in Milwaukee. Versatility. <laughs> it's versatile. But you know, third base, like I said, um, we talked about Luis Urias. It's such a, a nightmare right now. They've been linked to Justin Turner. That would certainly make the offense more interesting. Adding a bat like that. Uh, if they don't, it's going to be someone like Robertson or Urias or an unheralded player of sorts getting that opportunity to play third base again this season. They played a lot of Eric Sogard at third base last year, and I really hope that's not their 
their final decision for uh, 2021. But hopefully, as Eno said, we covered everything you could possibly have wanted in our shortstop preview. Uh, if there's someone that we didn't get to or someone you missed on a previous episode, hit us up, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. We've got a big mailbag episode coming up on Friday. Uh, if you want to check out all the great stuff we have over at The Athletic, $3.99 a month gets you started at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. On Twitter, he's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Friday. Thanks for listening.